near-death experience podcast, an ongoing exploration of spiritually transformative experiences, including NDEs and other phenomena, in order to elucidate the ineffable and better understand our spirituality. All episodes are available at ndepodcast.org. The views expressed and opinions given by the individual hosts and guests are not necessarily those of NDE Podcast, the NDERF, any sponsors, or for that matter, anyone else. In the end, the only opinion that really matters is yours. Near-Death Experience Podcast, item number 386, April 7th, 2022. Listener Questions from April 2022, Part 1 of Two Parts. As mentioned in number 385, this episode and 387 will be Chaz answering extensive questions from a listener. Before we get to the question and answers... I'd like to clarify some vocabulary that was used by Chaz in item number 385 when he talked about Marika's pregnancy termination. A little bit of confusion on the difference between a miscarriage or spontaneous abortion compared to an intentional or therapeutic abortion. Several of you wrote to us and we appreciate that. We try and be as succinct as we can. And where we fall short, we do appreciate you bringing it to our attention. One of the voicemails that we got from a listener who has not given me permission to use their name, so we'll just say it's anonymous, it reads as follows. Hi, Chaz and John. I was just listening to Marika's story. I am a midwife, and I wanted to clarify spontaneous abortion and miscarriage for you. A spontaneous abortion is the same thing as a miscarriage. The form of abortion that is purposeful is called an induced abortion or sometimes a therapeutic abortion. Thank you for the work you do. And she continues that she just discovered the show and is really enjoying it so far. Thanks again for what you do. Okay, so apologies for any miscommunication or misunderstanding about the words that were used. But now we've got it clarified. Thanks to this anonymous writer and to the others who wrote to us to help clarify this information. And now, part one of two parts of Chaz's question and answers from a listener email. Welcome to Near-Death Experience Podcast, the official source of audio accounts for the Near-Death Experience Research Foundation. I am Chaz Hathaway, author of Life in the Spirit World, what near-death experiences may teach about life on the other side, and the music album, Home, both of which can be found on our website, ndepodcast.org or neardeathexperiencepodcast.org. Okay, let's go to the uh, email. This is Josh. Josh uh, sends this email. I'm just going to read you the email, and then I will go through the individual questions. Josh says, I apologize up front if my email is too long. I appreciate your time. Thank you for what you're doing and for sharing all of this info, as well as your knowledge and opinions with all of us. I've been catching up for months on all the podcasts on iHeartRadio and hope to be able to be up to date by spring. 
I have heard the different formats and changes you've made to the program since the first episode and currently like the direction you're headed. Please keep going. You are appreciated. And I'm going to pause there and, and just say thank you, Josh. That is very kind of you to say. Okay, continuing. The reason I became interested in near-death experiences was from an incident that happened to me about a year ago. During a celebration of a World War II airborne veteran's 100th birthday, my team, my jump team made three jumps from a vintage WW2 C-47 aircraft at a public event in rural Ohio. I had only seven jumps prior to the event, so I was very inexperienced. But the drop zone was all fields with only a few scattered farms, so the risk for me was self-gauged to be low, and it was so close to home that it was the only opportunity for my family to watch me. Anyway, on the second jump, it was windy, and due to the round parachute design, Movement was limited, as no matter what direction I turned as I floated down, I was being pushed to the north. Coupled with being released from the plane too early and my inexperience, I ended up at the northmost point of the drop zone, a farm landing on top of a pole barn roof. I rolled over the peak and felt the parachute pulling me off. I made the split-second decision to quick-release the parachute from the harness, hoping I could hold on to the roof. Unfortunately, due to the momentum, I rolled off the roof and landed on my back. This was captured with my helmet camera. The impact with the ground knocked the wind out of me, and I made an eerie groan as I struggled to breathe again. Once the ambulance and paramedics made their way to me shortly afterwards, I was responsive but not completely coherent. I showed signs of a concussion with an unexplainable bump on my forehead under the vintage helmet and had chipped a front tooth. For your sake, I wish I could tell you a personal near-death experience from this point. However, I didn't have one, or at least one that I remember from your podcast discussions. There were two interesting things that did happen. One was that despite the height of the fall, other than the aforementioned minor injuries in my beat-up body, I didn't suffer anything broken or damaged. And after all of the ER tests, no evidence of a concussion. One could say a miracle. The other interesting thing I will share is an after-effect that lasted for two or three weeks. Once I went home, I started to question if I was alive or dead. I would look for clues such as landmarks on my way to or from work to convince myself if I was dead, I wouldn't be able to confirm this or that. Any conversations and interactions I had with others, I would question if I was in heaven or if I was alive in earth. I didn't feel scared or any other emotion. I even considered jumping again in the future. It was just a weird feeling of confusion. I shared this with a couple of friends. One of them did vaguely share that he had had a near-death experience when he had COVID in 2020 and was intubated at the hospital. He said he had a conversation with relatives that were not alive. I've since asked him if he will share more the next time I see him. However, he said he experienced the same phenomenon as I just described. 
Another friend, who was formerly a fireman, said he experienced the same phenomenon and had a near-death experience during a building fire, but he wouldn't share more details. My question for you is, if you've heard of this after-effect post-near-death experience, could I have had a near-death experience and not remember it? Or was the phenomenon I had a sim- uh, simply a form of PTSD? I could not find any documentation online after extensive re- uh, searches. I did suffer PTSD in the past from a robbery and being held at gunpoint, and that was very traumatic, much different from this after effect. Though the experience I just shared wasn't traumatic, I, I think it should have been. Somehow, my research to seek understanding of why I experienced that after effect led me to your podcast, and here we are. Anyway, part two of this long email, I gathered questions over the past many months from listening to the podcast and wanted to pose these to you based on your research or personal opinion. Ghosts, what are your thoughts on spirits remaining on earth and not moving on, and why? Why isn't it binary? We live on earth or in the spirit world away from the earth. What is your favorite, personal favorite, near-death experience story? Why do we experience life if, if I understood one of your podcasts correctly, whatever we don't learn on earth, we will learn in the spirit world, i.e., what are we trying to learn here on earth that we can't in the spirit world? The spirit world is full of care and love, and that is the theme. We come here with amnesia to forget everything out on, or to figure everything out on our own. But we already knew it all beforehand, correct? I've struggled to come up with an answer to the big question. Regarding life reviews, from hearing the accounts, I feel influenced to always love everything and help everyone now. While I feel I've been doing this unconditionally throughout my life, how do we differentiate between doing good unconditionally versus doing it with the thought that it will be on our life review now that we are tainted, for lack of a better word, from this newfound knowledge? From your research, is there a connection between astrology, not horoscopes, and the spiritual world? Does the life we choose on earth follow a timeline? Could we have chosen to be born in the 1800s or at a time in the future beyond 2022? I ask this as there is no timeline in the spirit world as I understand. Why do you think some people see Jesus and some see God during a near-death experience? When we pray, is there a proper chain of command for communication? Should we pray to God, Jesus, or both? What is the correct etiquette? Thank you for your time. And again, please continue your mission and purpose of sharing these experiences with me and many others. It is appreciated more than you know. Josh. And that's the end of the email. Thank you, Josh. What a fantastic email. Oh my goodness, there's so many things we could touch on in this. So let's just start with the order that that Josh uh, discusses them. First off, his own experience, in which he has a nearly dying experience, as we might call it, and then seems to have some of the after-effects of a near-death experience without having had a near-death experience. Josh, this is actually very common. And in my experience, more often than not, it suggests 
that yes, you probably did have some kind of near-death experience. Whether it was a detailed one or something very simple, sometimes people have, have even had you know, moments where while their body is unconscious, they have this overwhelming rush of feeling of love and, and, you know, acceptance and so forth as if their spirit is instantly fully connected to the spirit world for a short time. And then they're back in their body without ever having seen, heard, smelled anything um, beyond just being in the body. That is absolutely a legitimate near-death experience and will often lead to um, the after effects. However, often, as in your experience, the entire uh, experience itself is forgotten. Sometimes for weeks, sometimes months. I've even heard years, decades. I, I have mentioned several times in the podcast uh, um, one woman who 26 years after having an experience as a teenager, she is looking at the stars one day and just out of the blue, she's just having this nice, you know, view of the stars and out of the blue, she's like, oh yeah, I remember the stars and suddenly has this entire memory just kind of open up from that 14-year-old memory of having died, drowned in the water. And uh, she remembers, she'd remembered previously drowning, but you know, just going underwater and then waking up in the hospital, I mean, on the side of the pool, having been revived. She'd forgotten it for 26 years, um, which is kind of insane. And yet, after that, she had, you know, interest in spiritual things. She felt a a draw toward people in in ways that she hadn't before, um, that honestly don't sound terribly different than what you're describing. And, um, which also suggests to me that many people will have a near-death experience, have the after effects, if only those of not being afraid of death. In fact, sometimes feeling a, a just like this subconscious excitement about it because something down inside them knows that there's, there's more, but they can't explain it, so they don't try, and they live out their lives without ever having remembered. And that's my suspicion, I should say, in terms of of those situations. Obviously, if they did remember, um, or the only way we would know that they actually had one is if they did eventually remember. And I suggest that because many people who have these forgotten near-death experiences later in life have another one. And in that second one, they are reminded of their first one. And so if they had gone the rest of their life without nearly dying again, they never would have remembered. And then in other situations, like the woman I I mentioned, she's just looking at the stars, having a nice moment looking up at the sky at night, and it all comes back. Others have had it come back in bits and pieces through meditation, and they're like, wait a minute, when did I almost die? Then they go and they talk to their parents and say, did I ever have any close brushes with death as a child? And the parents will kind of look at each other and say, well, we didn't want to say anything because we thought it might freak you out, but when you were a newborn, you drowned in the bathtub or, you know, whatever. And and they'll be like, really, seriously? <laughs> they, they've lived out their whole life having, you know, kind of a, a spiritual tendency about them. Maybe sometimes they're more compassionate than their friends or they tend to either sense emotions more or maybe they just 
have this interest in God and, and heaven and, and religion in general. And, and they have this general sense of spirituality, curiosity, and so forth. And, and until they have that memory return, they're completely in the dark about any connection to a near-death experience. And I should say it's kind of not fair for me to really say all this because it causes a leading, you know, it's kind of like having an interview and asking leading questions. Well, did you see a red car? Was was it shiny? Was it a, a, a sports car? Was it a red, you know, obviously that can put false memories into a person's mind and all that. I understand all that at the risk of, you know, putting into your mind this idea that you've had a near-death experience, even though it's certainly possible that you did not, you know, I, I just feel like this information has to be out there because we've got to know what's possible in order to recognize when things happen. Because most people who have near-death experiences, most of them, will live out their lives not really telling people about it because they're afraid they're going to be told they're crazy, they're going to be, you know, shunned by their church because it differs with what they've been taught at church, or or they'll, you know, be estranged from their family because they're, you know, diehard atheist scientists or something. You know, there's all kinds of reasons people hide it. It could just be that they're like, it was a cool dream. That That's all it was. And yet it was, as they describe it, you realize that was definitely a near-death experience. Unless we get this information out there and, and give people the uh, spectrum of what is known, which unfortunately is not as much as could be if we were to share these things more, until people are aware of all these possibilities, they're not likely to make note of them. And so we won't have their experience to draw from. So I'm very grateful for uh, Josh sharing this, despite the fact that he didn't have, a, according to his memory, a near-death experience, yet he seemed to have some of the after effects. That suggests that it's very possible that he actually did have a near-death experience. So Josh, thank you for sharing that because um, this is actually more common than I think people know. I've even had friends who had nearly dying experiences, meaning that they almost died, and come back changed with no memory of any anything that happened, and yet their life completely turns around. They're more spiritual, they're more kind, they're more loving, they're compassionate, they're all these things. And I'm like, you had a near-death experience. I'm almost sure of it. Now, the other possibility, I should say this, and again, we're just thrown out possibilities because we're trying to understand these things. The other possibility is that with nearly dying, something happens to the veil, that, that, that amnesia that cracks it, that breaks it in some way. And in that break, some people pass through it and go to the spirit world, while others simply have this permanent kind of mental, emotional leak to the spirit world, whereby they're more interested in spiritual things. They're more curious about, about um, you know, uh, what happens after we die or, or whatever. Or as Josh describes, this sense of, am I, could I possibly be dead? Might this be the spirit world and I'm just, you know, mistaking it for mortal life? That I, I think that's another distinct possibility. 
But honestly, I kind of, between those two possibilities, one being having an experience but not remember it, the other being the veil cracks and forever after that you've got this leak from the spirit world, the effect is kind of the same. Not only the, the after effects that will persist throughout life, potentially anyway, um, but also this opening up of the spirit world to the mortal world via these people who have these cracks in the veil. I, I think there is great value in that. And I have a suspicion that many of the great, um, you know, mystics of the past and, the, and many religious founders in the past, um, that their whole organization branched out of their spiritually transformative experiences. And uh, for those new to the show, uh, we talk about near-death experiences and we use that term the most simply because it's the one that is most socially accepted among, you know, the world. You say, I had a near-death experience, saw a light, or, you know, a vision of angels, whatever. They get that. It's kind of, they, they don't necessarily understand it, but they get that. But um, since we know from studying these experiences that that you can have exactly those kinds of experiences without even approaching death. Sometimes they can happen in a dream in the night. Sometimes they can happen um, while praying or meditating or, or just simultaneously out of nowhere. Some people have these incredible spirit world visits and, and they have all of the elements of a near-death experience, but there's nothing of even approaching death around it. Or even close brushes with death, where someone nearly gets in a car accident and they miss by inches, but they have this near-death experience. And when they return, their you know, body is screeching to a stop and they may have tensed up muscles and so forth, but they have not hit anything. So there was no death. There was a fear of death, a sudden realization that death is inevitable that never happened. You know, what I'm suggesting is that any of these things that can, that um, lead to an experience or, or nothing that leads to it, but it just simultaneously occurs, the thing that they have in common is the elements of the experience itself. And we call that a spiritually transformative experience. And I understand that there are many ways you could, um, define a spiritually transformative experience, a, a feeling of love from God or, you know, whatever can, can be spiritually transformative. Um, absolutely, I don't deny that, but I'm, uh, we've kind of claimed that term spiritually transformative experience as a way of describing near-death experiences that may or may not revolve around a nearly dying situation. So I just bring that up um, in case you're not familiar with that term, spiritually transformative experience, um, because that's what we're talking about, near-death experience, whether it surrounds death or not. Okay, let's get back to Josh's email. He does ask, in asking, you know, could I have had an experience that I've forgotten? The answer is very possibly yes. Um, and then he says, or could it just be PTSD? Now, that is an interesting footnote to the question, because I would suggest, 
I, I've, I've had an interesting journey with PTSD, not, not PTSD, but post-traumatic stress, you might say. I have had in my own life many experiences where, you know, an accident occurred, like a car accident or, or maybe um, something happened where it was terribly frightening or maybe something that was just, you know, traumatizing in some way. Some trauma takes place. And there is a period where whenever I encounter something that reminds me of that, my heartbeat will increase. I'll start to sweat and feel anxious. And, you know, and I, and I will stop and I will look at myself and, and say, wow, I have post-traumatic stress. Now, it's not to the level of a disorder, I will, I will grant you. Um, and I don't want to equate what I'm experiencing with those with serious forms of PTSD, because that is a very real thing and something that should be dealt with with professional help. And, but, uh, but as far as post-traumatic stress uh, takes place, I find that when I encounter it myself, just simple post-traumatic stress, I can easily step out because it's not serious, like, you know, a disorder level, but I can easily step back and say, look at that. That's how my body is responding to the stimuli of, uh, for example, after having a car accident. Actually, I had two car accidents in a two-week period. They weren't uh, serious. I wasn't severely injured. I think I broke my nose in one, the other one not injured at all, but it was terribly um, startling. And having been so close to another accident in which I did get a mild injury, broken nose, I, um, I found that for a couple of weeks after that, every time I'd get in the car and start driving, it was really anxiety provoking and it was hard to, to drive and it was scary to be behind the wheel. Now, I'd been driving for 20 years. It wasn't like I was not practiced at it. I knew I could drive well. It wasn't that at all. It was just that my body was reacting to this. Now, I bring all that up um, and, and say that, you know, post-traumatic stress is a real thing that, that is both a physical thing that regardless of how prepared for death you are or, you know, fearless of death you might be, your body will still have its physical reactions. And I find them kind of amusing, honestly. I, I for one, tend to in an emergency situation where I am suddenly faced with serious, you know, situation, maybe not, you know, something where I'm, if I'm driving in a car, I can still have the reaction time I need. But immediately after that, when, when uh, my brain is trying to <clears throat> process what I've just been through, instead of going into fight or flight, I'm a freeze person, usually. And I will just freeze up and I suddenly can't remember my address, as I should be calling 911. I can't remember details of things. I'm like, you know, this freeze thing. And, and then I look at that and I go, that is hilarious. Look at that. I'm, I'm not afraid. Not really. And yet my body is reacting in this way. I say all that, and I'm sorry to go on, off on this tangent about trauma, but um, I say that because... I think there is a use to that. And I don't know how to, to verbalize this very well, but in that sensation of stress that comes from post-traumatic stress, when I find myself um, facing up to that stress and stepping back, like mentally 
separating myself and looking at it as my body responding to what it has been through. It's as if I am partially, at least mentally, not, you know, actual separation, but it's mentally I am separating my spirit from my body to say, look at that body doing what the body does. That is so interesting. And I kind of feel like there is some level of meditative connection with heaven that can come from post-traumatic stress when we approach it that way. Now, I would not suggest, and I would certainly beg all of you, do not put yourself in physically dangerous situations in order to try to have a spiritual connection of some sort. First off, this is just my speculation. It might be totally wrong. Second, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about danger. I'm talking about facing the post-traumatic stress and then mentally stepping out and observing the body. Because when we do that, that's, that's what meditation does anyway. That's what you're doing in meditation, is you're stepping out of the body. And I'm not meaning that your spirit leaves your body. I mean that you're separating your conscious awareness of yourself from the conscious or the physical body that you're in. I would not call it astral projection. I would not call it leaving the body. I would just call it seeing yourself as being separate from your body and thinking and observing the body from that perspective. I just say that to suggest that PTSD may often be the body's reaction to that separation. Does that make sense? So when the body, which in some form is a separate life form than the spirit, in some way it is, because people have had near-death experiences while their body sits behind and they're standing over their body and there's beep, 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 still existing body, but it's, it's you know, maybe in a coma or it's, it's just, you know, sleeping and barely aware of things. It is living separate from the spirit for that moment. And even some people have had the experience of, of leaving their body and watching from 10 feet away, floating above, and watching their body screaming and covering their head in a trauma, and, and watching their body have its living reaction to what's going on and what's happening to it at that moment. Your spirit and your body to some level, are two separate things, two separate living things. Now, this, the body cannot live without the spirit long. It depends on it. It needs consciousness in order to, to exist long. But, we, but it can, in some level, exist for short times without the spirit. At least that's what my experience of reading these accounts suggests, which tells me that like meditation, it may be possible to either be reminded of spiritual things or maybe put a little crack in the veil or maybe wrench that crack in the veil a little bigger by facing those post-traumatic stress situations. For me, I had a couple of, I wouldn't call them close brushes with death because I was never unconscious, but I had a couple of moments in my life as a child 
a young teenager, uh, one of them, and nine years old is another, maybe, no, I, I might have been closer to 12, actually, when I nearly drowned. One of the times I was under the water struggling, was pulled out by a lifeguard. The other time I was on my own with my sister, who was just as bad a swimmer as I was, with just a little more energy, and I was doggy paddling to shore and not getting there fast enough and exhausting myself and realizing this might be it. I might be about to die. And for years after that, I had post-traumatic stress around deep water. I could go into a wading pool just fine, but even though I knew how to get to the surface and, and, and more or less tread water, uh, mostly via doggy paddling around, I was terrified of water, uh, deep water. Not, not to where I was like, you know, like, oh, keep me away from there. But, but to where if I approached it, you know, 10, less than 10 feet from it, I'd get this, you know, anxiety building up and heart beating faster and, and kind of that sense of dread as, as I saw the deep water. So I've, I've experienced post-traumatic stress at that level. And a couple of years ago, we um, were given, uh, kind of as a gift, a year-long family pass to a local swimming pool, which means for a year we come in uh, for free, just use our pass, we'd come in anytime. And I decided I was going to get over my fear of the water and get good at swimming. And I did spend that year doing that. And there was something about that that was really eye-opening for me. And I don't know how to quantify it because it was something that was, that I don't think you can experience without facing post-traumatic stress face on. Now, I didn't try to drown or anything. I didn't do any of that. But I did get to the point where I was diving off the diving board, you know, head first, well, hands, you know, the whole traditional swan dive thing. And I could do that, not not with any degree of talent, not that I had any grace about it, but I could willingly do that. And yeah, it was always, you know, a little stressful getting up on that diving board and going, okay, here, I'm going to do it again. Whoa, it's kind of scary. And then making the dive. And I got to the point where I could do that. I could go, you know, retrieve a brick off the bottom of the deep end, things like that. And it was, it always had a level of stress about it. But facing it, I overcame that, that traumatic level of stress. I'm no longer terrified of deep water. But, and I'm also a fairly confident swimmer, not super fast, but I can stay above water for 40 minutes. I, I clocked one time before I ran out of time. Maybe I could have kept going. I don't know. But, but just staying above water in the deep end, just swimming around, floating around, just as... Anyway, the, the point is, is that there is something to facing that post-traumatic stress that uh, has a connection to the, you know, with that spirit and body connection, I guess you could say. I don't know if that's making sense, but what I would suggest to Josh is do some more jumping, obviously in the safest, you know, manner possible and so forth, and try just listening to your, you know, inner self. Do some meditation while you're, while you're floating down or whatever, however that works for you, and see Maybe it won't bring back memory, but just see what you can learn from it. See what you can feel from it. I think there's something to that. Okay.
that is a huge answer to a very small question. <laughs> and we have a lot of questions to go. Okay, so here we go. Um, he goes on and says, Ghosts, what are your thoughts on spirits remaining on earth and not moving on and why? Well, this sounds like a pretty good place to pause until the next episode where Chaz will pick right up with his thoughts about ghosts and spirits who remain on earth and do not move on. Until then, thanks for listening. This is your host, John Messer, reminding you that it's all about attitude and gratitude, and our attitudes should always be love.